Hello, everyone. Thank you. Give me a moment to get configured here. All right. Um, yeah, and if you could avoid mentioning the nativity play to my daughter ever. We're out of town that Sunday, and the longer we can hold off on her knowing, the better things will be. Um, all right. Yeah, so we are in uh, First Peter. Um, as you can tell from the Nativity play, we are nearing the season of Advent, which we are going to celebrate for I think our fourth straight year. Um, which means we are just by nature of calendar in the, nearing the end of our series on First Peter. Um, I'm covering this week, and then Terry will be back next week to close the book off. I know he is in transit right now, somewhere in the air. Legal lands at 1.30 tomorrow if anybody wants to head to the airport to greet him there. Um, as we're, I don't know which area, probably Burbank from Dubai. Um, as we're nearing the end of, yeah, as we're ending the near the end of the se- uh, series, we're seeing a couple of things. We're, and this week we will see both Peter's main arguments he's been making kind of coming to a close because he's running out of paper, uh, paper. And also he gives his final exhortation to this book. Uh, he gets those final points he wants to say into these people who he's been addressing for what us has probably felt like an eternity, but for the reader has about 10 minutes. It's not that long a book. Um, to give a little context as we come to a close, uh, since this is my final time I get to say this, this book was written in the uh, 60s by the Apostle Peter. Uh, it was written to Christians that were living in Asia Minor, which, um, for those who don't know geography as well, it's the kind of rectangular shape, um, kind of southeast of Europe as you head towards the Middle East, or if you prefer the Mediterranean, it's the kind of rectangle in the northeast corner. Um, It is north of um, Jerusalem. So basically, I believe now you'd have Jerusalem, Lebanon, Turkey. It's modern-day Turkey. Uh, And then if you head west from it, you go across the sea, you get to Greek, Greece and its peninsula, crossing a little sea, and you get the boot of Italy, where Rome is. Peter is writing from Rome. So we have a church that was founded essentially in the 30s after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that is spread throughout the Mediterranean area. And Peter, the apostle who was here, has now landed in Rome and is writing back to a series of diverse Christians in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is a diverse geographical area. There's mountains, there's coasts. It's kind of like California in that way. It's also diverse in the number of people. Where it is makes it a highly conquered area because it's the way you go from Europe to around the uh, lands towards the Middle East and on into um, both Africa and also into the other parts of Asia. So it's basically like you just keep passing through it and conquering it, which leads to a very diverse set of ethnic groups that have settled in this region. Um, Galatia gets its name from the Gauls, who are up in basically Germanic, Germanic uh, French area, and they've now settled, so there's very white people down here and there. So that's how diverse the, number, the uh, area is. Peter's writing to Christians here who are undergoing a level of separation from the society. They're under pressure. He addresses them as elect exiles. These are people who are living in this society of Asia Minor, but also are not fully part of the society of Asia Minor. By nature of them being brought into the church and into this life of God, they now stand somewhat apart from the rest of society. This is partially because Rome was a very polytheistic society. They kept conquering people, and everywhere they conquered, you could just bring your gods in with you. They didn't care as long as the as long as Caesar and Rome remained at the top. That works for most. It ran into direct conflict with Christians who would say, no, Jesus and God is up here at top. We're happy to be good Roman citizens, but we will not recognize this, and it leads into conflict. Right now, in this time when the letter is written, it seems to be more light. Uh, it's social pressures. It's feeling like they're on the outside. But it's also, we know from history, the first major period of persecution is about to kick up, at least in Rome, where Peter is, with Nero. That's the context into which this is written. 
Peter is writing to encourage these people. He wants to encourage them to live lives well in the midst of this situation. So in the midst of these pressures, to maintain their witness and to maintain their walk so that they persist through the end and the message goes out with them of this kingdom. So that, the final exhortation should tie into that. He's also tying up a section on suffering. It's a really uplifting letter in some ways. He's in the midst of a section on suffering, and that's what he's bringing to a close this week before he goes into the final exhortation. So with that context set, I'll read the section, and it's actually a long passage. Well, most of chapter 5, which isn't that long, so it's medium passage. This is starting in, in verse 1 of chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this could easily be separated into two passages to preach on. There's a passage addressed to the elders. And then there's these closing exhortations to be humble, to be alert, and to resist the devil. Um, As I said, due to time constraints, this is all happening this week. Um, So as I told Dan, I have a long sermon here. This is, don't worry, this isn't the, keep listening. Probably about an hour and 15 minutes. I'm editing on the fly. Um, So stick with me as much as possible here. Um, Because I'm going out of town this week, and we aren't finishing next week. So what's going to be said is going to be said this week. (laughs) Um, I told Dan that, and he goes, isn't that kind of your thing? So yeah, I guess I do, generally edit on the fly. Um, But this is worse than normal. Um, So this seems counterintuitive, but we do have, towards the end of this, a person who makes an appearance who has not yet been present in this book. And it kind of comes out of left field. It's like we're going through the book all of a sudden, and at the very end, towards the end, Peter's like, and watch out for the devil. (laughs) Cool. Um, Christians have a funny relationship with the devil. Generally speaking, he either is behind every bush, absolutely terrifying, or he doesn't exist in our frame of thought at all. And um, I would much tip over towards the he doesn't exist at all camp. I'm not saying that theologically. I'm just saying as a functional portion of my life, that's the way I generally live it out. I don't think about the devil on a regular basis. I think this is partially, this reaction is due to our culture's impression of the devil upon us. The fact that my vision of the devil is based in a Tom and Jerry cartoon from the 80s, where he's basically a thin guy with a red suit and a little tail and a trolley mustache, which feels far more like this weird bit of mythology that kind of somebody forgot to edit out of the book before they published it. But that's not the way we should conceive of him. It's not the way scripture conceives of him. He is there from the beginning. He's the snake in the garden, tempting Eve with that question, did God really say? But he's also not all the time present. He actually just disappears from huge sections of the text. And then he'll make an appearance, and then he disappears again. But the way that it plays it out, you get the feeling that when he makes an impression, and as we learn about him, he is always working behind the scenes in some way. Now, that's not saying every time you don't get a parking spot or you stub your toe, it's the devil. 
but it does mean that he is at work behind the scenes. And he has influence over what's happening. And that's how Peter wants us to understand this. And this is not me just trying to push, or the devil showing up here, let's push him back into the rest of the book. Peter himself does this. His comment on the devil is to be sober-minded. It's an odd phrase that it shows up three times in this book. Terry covered one of them about three weeks ago in chapter four, where he says, be sober-minded. It's basically trying to apply the opposite of drunk to a spiritual-minded. The other time Peter says it is at the very beginning of the letter. Right after he's finished his doxology, where, he's talk, where he kind of gives an overview of the book and blesses God, the first thing that happens is he starts a section with 113, therefore, preparing your minds for action, which literally translates girding up the loins of your mind, which I always picture like a brain in tidy whities but preparing your mind for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the transformation that's supposed to happen. So you're supposed to be, prepare your minds for action, gird up the loins of your mind, and be sober-minded so that you are transformed. And it talks about how we are transformed personally and how we are transformed as a, a collective, the church. From there, the next section of the book talks about how this transformed life lives itself out in a way that both maintains that transformed life and also gives a good witness amongst various relations. You get the government, slavery, um, marriage, talking about how we are to live in this area. In this area, you see that there's going to be suffering in how we live out there. So Peter moves into a section talking about suffering in general and suffering well. That's the book. Be transformed, live this way in these relationships, this will be, include suffering, so this is how we suffer. The whole book, this whole transformation kicks off with be sober-minded. Basically, what it causes when you get to this is you realize, oh, I need to be sober-minded in my transformation because there are forces out there and there are things that are trying to resist this. And it's not just a passive shape I'm trying to push against. It's an active entity that is pushing against our transformation and us living out our lives in the proper way. I have no idea where I am. So he presents him as this beast that is roaming, that's ready to devour. He presents him as the way he does it is to isolate to get people separated off so that he can devour them. And the way he does it is by devouring their faith. It's a vivid image. And it's not Peter just trying to get something punchy in there so that you remember the letter and everybody has a happy image of First, of first Peter, which is probably what he called it. It is to place this image in front of us in a way that really vividly portrays a threat. You see the threat here. It's a wild beast. It's like a lion walking into this room. That would catch the, our attention. I'm sure I would protect my wife, but part of me just thinks I would just head for the door. But it would catch our attention, attention if a lion suddenly walked in here. That's what Peter's trying to do. He's trying to say there is a real and active threat. You need to be aware of it. Do you see the threat and do you feel it? I think modern Christianity, to some extent, struggles with this. And I think especially, to some extent, the vein of modern Christianity that we find ourselves in struggles with this threat. Part of that is because it's a reaction to very bad theology from earlier in the 20th century. This is the theology where basically losing your salvation was behind every corner. It's like, you're, it's like the Jack Chick view of salvation. And no one else knows these little strips? Chick Jacks, yeah. Um, basically, it's this idea of like you're doing really well, and then you go to church, you're doing really well, and you walk into a bar and accidentally inhale somebody else's cigarette and damnation. Basically how it works. Or you heard some music, you were going to church, but you heard music coming through the window of the other house and your foot tapped a little too much. Damnation. It's a very legalistic view. 
And we've pushed against that rightly. We basically said, no, that's not how it works. But the problem is we push against it so much that you get to where nothing I do matters. The other thing that really pushes this, and <laughs> I'm going to insult everyone in this, it's the bad photocopy of a truth, a distorted photocopy of truth of once saved, always saved. That is the idea that I'm golden because I signed a piece of paper back in 1987, or I prayed a prayer in 92, or even that I went to church consistently from like 96 through 2003. Nothing to do with Jesus since then. But I will someday be surprised to find out that he's real and I'm in heaven, though I'd spent my entire life pushing against this because he's like, you're really lucky you signed that card in 82. What that is a distortion on is the idea that God preserves those who are his. But what it misses is the fact that from the outside, that preservation looks like a faithful life. It looks like a person walking with God. It's saying God is enabling us and empowering us. He's doing the work that the passage in Philippians talked about of changing our desires and helping us to walk out this walk that he's called us to. He is the one who is going to see us to where we need to go, but it's going to look a lot like faithfulness. Now, it's not to say it's going to be perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Again, we're not trying to veer off towards the other end of it. Israel roamed for 40 years and still made it into the promised land. There are people who have seasons of wandering who come back. But there are also people who wander away, never to return. And I hope this doesn't sound like a legalism because I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying that we earn our salvation. The image that has come to my mind as I kept preparing this sermon, and you're now stuck with it, um, is basically, this probably is because of the movies I watch and the games I play, if you imagine you're in a jungle, just go with me here, and you're in, it's just picture Indiana Jones, and you're in the little village, and you're a group of people, and you need to get from the little village you're in to the capital, through the deadly jungle. The way you do it in these movies is you go find a guide. You get like basically Aragorn and Indiana Jones jammed into one person, like his muscles have muscles, and he is the one who promises to see you through. He is capable, and he will see you through the jungle to the other side. Now, if you've seen this movie, the group always has the same composition. There's always a set of people who are drawn to the guide. You start off a little questioning, like, he's going to get me here, but I don't know if I personally really like him, but over the course of time, as he they hear a frightening noise and he pulls them close or they bump into him or he rescues them from the quicksand and they start to warm up to him. He shares some food with them. He's the one who like they see. So it gets, they get through this and they start to react to him and take his lead through this. So like when they see like the little Jim and the monkey's paw, they look to him to see if they should grab it before they grab it. Just never grab any gems in jungles is one of the things I've learned. That's your takeaway from today. But there's always another person in those stories, usually balding with glasses and a little bit of a belly, and for some reason carrying books, who doesn't really like the guide, but he's going to set out with him. And as he hears the noises, he starts to get scared. He pushes against this guide and draws himself away. Now, what happens in every one of those movies is eventually a panther or something falls from the tree and roars. The people who have been walking with the guide pull in close to him to be protected. The guy who dislikes the guide always sprints off into the jungle to try and save himself. And since it's a PG-13 movie, what usually happens is you see a shadow come out and then it cuts away from it and you hear noises as he's being devoured. Now, when the rest of the people who, and then the guide protects all the people and gets the panther to flee and then gets them there safely. When they get there safely, they didn't get themselves across the jungle safely. They drew closer to the one who can get them through there. That's what Peter wants to put in front of us. He wants us to see that there is a danger, not so that we feel like we need to earn it. Not so that we feel threatened that Jesus is waiting for just, like, if I do one more bad thing, I've managed to cross the line and he is going to kick me out. That's not the story the Bible tells. The story the Bible tells is God will stay with us, but we still can walk away. 
It's like a marriage to a person who will never divorce us. If you want, that marriage might be bumpy, it might be challenging, it might have its hard spots and its near spots, but as long as you want to stay in that marriage, you can. But if you don't, it's next to impossible. And that's meant to frame this letter. These people are supposed to understand that the persecutions they're facing, the challenges they're facing right now, are not simply something random. It's not simply that the Romans have a bad attitude. They're supposed to know that, yes, that's potentially part of it. But there also are forces at work that are trying to devour their faith. They need to be alert. They need to be watchful so that they can persist. The annoying thing here, (laughs) Satan, the other annoying thing here, and this is for me, as my wife has noted in many things, I'm a sprinter. I sprinted in high school. I was a swimmer. Sorry, I didn't just like run around. I was a swimmer. My longest race was like a minute 43 seconds. That was where I capped. My attention span cuts out about there. This resistance, the way Peter gives it, is a lifelong thing. Satan doesn't come one time and you resist him and then you can just coast for the next 40 years. It is something that is a constant, perpetual process of resistance. And that is his strategy, to use persecution and separation. And he can do this partially because of who we are. He takes the fact that we're elect exiles and he heightens that exile part. And he makes it so that you see the nice thing off here, that if you just were to walk away from Jesus, you can have this. Or you feel the pressure coming from here, and if you just will yield on this, the pressure will stop. And he pushes that, and he pushes that. And that's how we make sense, partially, of this thing that ended uh, chapter 4. Which I know Terry spoke on, but I don't know actually what he covered. Sorry, I didn't get a chance to listen where he says, for the time of judgment to begin with the household of God. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, what it's getting at is when there's no pressure and when there's no persecution in certain cultures, you can basically have the fervent Christians, the fervent non-Christians, and a gigantic middle. This has been the state of America for a long time. I grew up in the South. This is the South. You're basically, if you are not Jew, when I was growing up, if you weren't Jewish, you were a Christian by default. I mean, it came with Santa, so it worked, but that's pretty much it. I didn't have any Christian belief, although other than I figured if there was a God, it had to be Jesus because I didn't know there were other options. But it was this very fuzzy middle. And because of that, what you end up with in the U.S. is you end up with about 80% historically have identified as Christians. It was over a 10-year period. I'm going to get the numbers slightly wrong. I should have looked this up. I apologize, but it's directionally correct. Um, about over a 10-year period, it dropped from about 80% to about 60%. It was a 20% drop of people who identified as Christians. Now, what you didn't get was a bunch of devoted, fervent Christians going, I finally got around to reading Dawkins. This whole thing's bunk. I'm out of here. What you got was the people who basically, by default, when they didn't know what else to answer, just checked off Christian, started checking off none. Because what you've always had in the U.S., and this goes back decades, is you have about 20% of the U.S. population has been consistent church-going Christians. The other 60% was always non-consistent Christians. But what's happening as things are shaking, it's starting to draw the line more clearly. That's what we're experiencing a little of. It's much more firmly shown in, first, in the world of First Peter, where these people are living in Asia Minor as persecution of real persecution is coming down towards them. It's putting pressure on people, and they come to a point where just kind of walking this along nice and easy doesn't cut it. If they don't believe it that much, and I can either gain this or I can get rid of this pressure, Jesus goes out the door. 
that is the shaking that's starting to happen. It is oddly presented both as a challenge to the church, because it's not like it's a great thing. This is real persecution and real challenge these people are facing and real pressures from with Satan playing along with them. But it also is presented as, as to some extent, a grace. Because the people who are actually persisting through it are having their, strength, their faith tested and then strengthened. If you've gone through an extremely challenging time, if you've had your life fall apart while you're a Christian and you're still a Christian at the end of it, you feel more confident in your faith because you've seen that it can persist through, through challenges. You know that you're not just a Christian because everything is going well. That's what we're seeing here. Now, what's odd in this passage, the passage that I started reading, which reads, so I exhort the elders among you, that so is actually, it's the Greek word un, which usually gets translated therefore or thus. It has the idea of what I just said, in light of what I just said, this. So basically, in light of the fact that you are suffering, that suffering is coming your way and you are charged to suffer well, in light of the fact that there is a shaking and judgment is beginning to come within the church, therefore, I exhort the elders. It's a weird transition. It's not the direction I would have expected Peter to go. I would have expected him to continue on the line of exhorting all the, Christ, the, all the church to live more fully, to push into God something, but he turns to close off this section on suffering and addresses first the elders. Now, Terry made me promise, so I'm going to keep my promise right here to point something out to you. The word here, elder, which we know is a church leadership role, they are to shepherd and they are to provide oversight. So there would be shepherds, elders, overseers. These words... Is Presbyterios is elders, which is where we get Presbyterian church. It's where the name comes from. It's an elder-ruled church. Uh, shepherd is where we get pastor. And uh, I can never do it correctly. Episc episkopos, there we go, is where we get episcopal. It's a church run by bishops. It's a word for bit that gets translated bishop eventually. What you have here is you have all three of those roles in one person. Or, a, sorry, one role. You have an elder who is in charge of shepherding and providing the oversight of a bishop in one role. And that was the early church government. That then, then you really don't start to see a separation of those roles with the elder and bishop starting to pull apart a little bit towards the end, until towards the end of the second century. That's to give a context of these, this is speaking to church leaders. Now it's speaking to church leaders in the midst of a challenging persecution Partially because the, what, if the conception here of a shepherd is not simply a person who cuddly holds sheep. It is the, as you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, the thing that comforts you in Jesus is not simply that he will cuddle you. It's that he has a staff and a rod. A rod is a weapon. This is basically, think a club. They have a club, and they have a club they can throw with accuracy that if a large animal say a lion, were suddenly to appear with the flock there, the shepherd moves themselves in front of the flock to defend the flock because sheep can't protect themselves. Similarly, Paul gives a similar charge where he also uses the shepherd, elder, and oversight and this overseer in the same uh, passage at the, uh, in Acts 20. He's heading off to Jerusalem. He's addressing the Ephesian church. He knows he's not going to see these people. He has spent years pouring into them. He, know danger is, he knows danger is coming, so he calls the elders to them. And he gives them the charge to be alert. Be, because he knows that wolves will arise. Even from within them, will arise using twisted words to try and draw people away. Once again, be alert because wild animals are coming for the flock. The impression here is one, and the reason he charges the elders is because the impression, well, the impression, the command for the elders is to stand in front when the challenge comes. It's to take, to put themselves in danger. It's when the persecutions come, they would bear the brunt first. And this happens in Rome. They came for the church leaders. 
It's also that they will be the ones who are in charge of correcting the doctrine, of making sure that it stays right. And it means they're going to need to correct people from within the church. They're going to potentially need to correct the people that everybody else likes within the church who are trying to draw somebody away from this message. And it's not an easy task, and it's not a happy task. We see it in the criteria that are given for the elders. They're not to be pugnacious is one. I love the word pugnacious. They're not to be given to fighting. And they're not to be given to fighting because the fight generally will come to them. But they're given this charge, and then he, t- he asks them to do three, th- three things, which make a lot of more sense when you realize they're basically being asked to stand as the potential first recipients of the, ch- the persecutions that are coming and the ones who have been charged with protecting the flock in the midst of this hard time. He says that they would do this not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering, but as an example. Basically, they are not to be driven by other things, not by the fame or claim they can get, not by the riches it can bring them, not even by the steady paycheck or anything else that can come to them from this angle, but they are to do this eagerly. And if you've got people who are going to bear a brunt of the pressure, there can be a temptation to come down hard and to try and rule with an iron fist under the justification of there's threats out there. But that's not what they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to domineer. They're supposed to be an example. That's the charge to the elders. He also gives a charge to the younger, which... I won't go through the whole math to get there, but it basically means the entire everybody else. And it's to submit. Now, what does that mean to submit? Does it mean that you guys are supposed to come to the elders every time? I mean, should Miles and Whitney have run their kid's name past the elders? I mean, do we need to talk about jobs and where you guys move and um, who any of the single people date, which we don't have anymore? Um, No, that's not what it's looking to, but it is in the case of the direction of the church and the doctrine, that's where the submission is supposed to be. Because the elders have been charged with protecting the people in the church. Now, in the midst of all of this, what's nice is Peter turns and addresses everybody. Because there's a couple ways Satan gets us. One is that he tracks us somewhere else, and we need to set aside Jesus to get there. The other is that he brings pressure and pain and we need to set aside Jesus to make it end. And the third is that the church is an absolute nightmare sometimes of interpersonal relationships. As many people as have left from those two outside forces, a multitude has left because the church has been abusive or heavy-handed or cruel. I wish it wasn't the case. I wish I could get up here and say Christianity is fantastic. But short of getting into a no true Scotsman argument, we just don't work that way. Christianity has a very spotty record of doing almost everything. Jesus is the good Christian. The rest of us are just trying to do as best we can to follow after him. And part of it is that the church is given to infighting often. And if you're supposed to be a people who are closely living life together, and you're supposed to be supporting and encouraging one another, and that starts to be under a culture where there's pressures on the outside, and you're looking for, and there starts to be a looking for any reason to escape these, if you're a person who's easily offended, you won't make it. If you're a person who puts yourself above all others, you will start to crush others. So we need to clothe ourselves in humility. It's not just so that we look all nice and humble. It's for survival. We need to be humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Again, this is not to put it up as a work. This is not because anybody deserves his grace, but you can put yourself in a position of receiving his grace more. Humility is required for all of this to work. 
the longer I've been a Christian, the more you see how pride undermines everything. It's shot through this letter. It's assumed as the virtue that informs the way we live here. I mean, it's, you see it in the relationships that he, can, he instructs people to live in. We who have been called by God, who sit as his church, who know that there is no one else who reigns but him, are to submit to and honor Caesar. Why? Because we humble ourselves below him such that we can be humble before another person. So too with a slave who is called to serve their master. A hard, hard command. But done again because the slave knows who they really belong to. It shows up throughout the Christian life. We're instructed here to turn. He talks about how you turn from the wicked ways inherited from your forefathers. That is, you turn from the life you knew and how you were living within it. That requires humility to hear the message that this wasn't what was working and that someone else has the way forward. It requires it in the ongoing path, back to the jungle metaphor, of staying near Jesus, of looking to him as the one who will light the path and show us the way we need to go. When I became a Christian, I was instantly convicted in an interesting setting that Jesus was real. I knew he was real, but I was not even kind of humble. I am, I don't know, by nature or by who I am, I am a proud person. I'm very confident in my skills and often a little cocky. It has been a process of being humbled by God that I have grown. And all of you can say, a lot of room to grow, which is true. <laughs> but, it is, but it starts with being humble before God and learning that I was not the second coming of Jesus, that I am not the one the entire world has been waiting for, but coming to go see Jesus for who he is and us for who we are. We live in a world where we all are the star of our, the movie. The magnificent story of Christianity is that there actually is a different star than us who's a lot more worth watching. And at best, we get to play the role in the magnificent fight scene. We're like the cook who gets to hit one person in the head with a frying pan, and that's our scene. Most of us just run around like this as extras. But that's the story, and that... Coming to actually see that as good requires humility. Because none of us want to be the cook with the frying pan. We want to be the guy with the sword. But that's who we are in this story. I don't know why I'm looking anymore. We, in order to come and to resist in an age when we want to, because one of the temptations is going to come and it comes already. It is to reconfigure the tenets of Christianity into something that we find more palatable. Or often more accurately, something that the world finds more palatable. It is to come and go, not this one, not this one, not this one. And we have that urge in us, partially because we're all competent people. But it takes humility to look at a message that was given 2,000 years ago and say, this still speaks to me today. And I don't have the privilege of editing it. It takes humility to live in a church. This has been challenging. Another fact about Brian, I don't like people. Or I didn't like people more accurately. My mother took me to a psychiatrist, not for that, to a psychiatrist doing a job survey when I was uh, 13 or so. The main thing he came back with was, Brian doesn't really like people, but he finds them interesting. My sister said I didn't give her a hug 
an actual hug willingly until I was about 24. This is post-Christianity. I was a bristling, hard person. And it's been, and so living in a tight-knit, like 17 of us, community for almost 20 years now has been at times extremely challenging. And it's often been the most challenging when I have just done the stupidest possible thing and realized that that's just who I still am. But God still loves me, these people still love me, and we're moving forward. But that takes humility. It takes humility to trust that God has our best interest, that the best thing we can do with our riches and our resources is trust him with them. Again, I feel like I'm a fairly competent person. There is a strong desire to believe I can chart the course for everything. That I can just get my way from here to there and I can make it happen. And it takes humility to go, no, I don't know. Now, that's not to say that I simply, I don't wake up, just to be clear on the picture here, I don't wake up in the morning and be like, God, do I go to work today or not? I'll just sit here until you pray. I'm always late to my 9 o'clock meeting. That's not my life. There is a lot of stuff that we simply execute on that we know what we're supposed to do on a day-to-day basis, that we are in charge of lots of things. But when it comes to shaping the overall picture and the goals, really, the vision of what our life is supposed to be, it's something that we're supposed to receive. And it takes humility to receive that and to place our hope so far in the future and trust that God will see, it, see us to it. I mean, since we're putting our treasure beyond the veil of death and trusting a promise that we'll get it there. And that takes humility. I want to close this sermon and really my section of this entire First Peter the way that I open it. I open it a while, uh, years back, whenever we actually started this, talking about Peter and the story of Peter's life. And I want to do that again. There I talked about how Peter got his name. And this is Simon, who was given the name Peter by Jesus, in part because of his, his speaking the revelation that he was given that this is the Christ. Peter, as presented in the Gospels, is not humble. He is headstrong and arrogant through most of the story. And there's multiple times where that gets him in some sort of some trouble. My favorite section is when he tries to brag about how he's given everything up um, after Jesus tells the story of the rich young ruler, like how hard it is for the rich, and Peter starts to brag about how much he's given up, and Peter cuts him off. Like the way the passage reads, Peter doesn't, Jesus doesn't let Peter finish his thought to basically go, yeah, there's nothing you can give me that I won't give you infinite amount more back in return. I'm not in your debt, Peter. But Peter's expectation through the story of most of the Gospels is that he will be elevated. Jesus is coming to, in his mind, as the Messiah, to throw down the oppressive powers of Rome, to bring Israel back to what it's meant to be as its king. And you know who's, who it's good to be when there's a new king? The king's inner circle that was with him the whole time. So that's where Peter has is the promise, which is part of the reason, and all, not just Peter, all of the apostles have this view. None of them have this view that it makes perfect sense that we're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested, they'll kill you, and you'll rise again. That'll do it. That's none of their impression of what's supposed to happen here. They bristle at that every time Jesus tells them. They're like, this is crazy. You weren't supposed to be doing this. Peter actually says that. But his expectation 
to the end is it's finally coming. Jesus is going to throw down Rome. So when they go to arrest Jesus, Peter's like, it's here. He grabs his sword, and you realize he can't actually use a sword because he tries to kill a guy and chops his ear off. I don't even know how you can be that incompetent with a sword. That's just shy of just bumping him in the head. But, Peter, but Jesus stops Peter, and he returns the ear to the guy. And this is Peter, who has previously, like a couple hours previous, said, they might all run away from you. I won't run. I will stand firm beside you. Jesus walks up. I'm very humble Peter saying this. Jesus walks up, heals the guy's ear, and Peter sees in that moment that what he anticipated, this person rising up and throwing down Rome, was not going to happen. That he was serious about the arrest thing, and Peter flees. And he follows Jesus, saying, maybe something's going to turn around here. And then this great man who, in his mind, was going to stand firm. He was the right hand. He was going to stand firm beside Jesus when no one else would. Denies he even knows Jesus three times in a row. The third time being to a servant girl. A terrifying servant girl. But Jesus rises, good, good news to the story. And after his resurrection, there's a, an, an incident on the beach. You don't know how much interaction Jesus and Peter have had prior to this. Um, Peter's definitely appeared, Jesus definitely appeared when they're all there. But we don't know how much interaction they've had. And there's definitely still a tenderness in Peter. He still knows what he did. but he still runs to Jesus when he sees him. He knows this is a person he has betrayed. He's known this is a person where his own weaknesses failed this person that he cared about. In a moment of this person's greatest need, his closest, one of his closest people just ran away and left him alone surrounded by soldiers. So we don't know what conversations they've had But he, he talks to Peter, and he has breakfast with Peter. Jesus liked to eat. And then Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep. Sorry, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter's been humbled. He's come back knowing that his power is not what was going to keep him to stand by Jesus. But he's found in Jesus someone who, even though he asks piercing questions, someone who asks him, do you love me, and receives the answer is yes, and knows that Peter loves him. And he puts Peter back on a path of tending a sheep. Peter addresses these people. He steps down to a sense from his um, apostolic pedestal and puts his arm around the elders and says, I know what you do. I know the pressures. I'm exhorting you as another elder. I am an elder in this church as well. Because he's been set back to tending the sheep. He is a pastor and an elder as well as an apostle. He's been put back in a spot of humbly leading. And he stayed that course. He didn't do it perfectly. We also know that Paul had to correct him fairly firmly again. So... He was still petering, but he stayed firm to the end, to a death as a martyr. And we have no tradition would say he was crucified upside down. 
because he didn't want to be crucified the same way as his Lord. That's the transformation that was worked in his life. That was the transformation that took him to Rome. It was a transformation that had such impact in this world as he worked through these churches, as he spent his time pouring his life out into others. It was a transformation of humility, of trusting who his Savior was. And it brought him through. Because no matter how many challenges he faced, even as he faced crucifixion, he can still say that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All his suffering was but a moment. Now he is there, having obtained that unfading crown. And he challenges us to do the same. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word, even when it's challenging. Lord, I thank you for the weight you put upon us sometimes because it reshapes us. I thank you how you use all things to our good. I thank you how even the hardest portions of this life are but a moment compared to eternity. And I pray that you would be shaping us as people shaped by you. That you would reveal the glory and the beauty of your son to us. That we would see that he is the model of humility. That he is the one who are not grasping for his position, humbled himself to take on flesh to be obedient even to death on a cross, that we might be saved. Lord, let that be, that beauty be spotlighted in front of us. That our hearts would desire him, that they would see him as our treasure. Lord, that as we walk through this world, that we would draw nearer to him. Lord, that the threats of this world would not provoke our hearts to fear, but they would provoke us to draw nearer to the one who is our safety. Lord, let us not be foolhardy, but wise, trusting the good builder, trusting the chief shepherd, trusting the one who cares for our soul. In his name we pray, amen.